Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. And welcome to Palace Confidential, the Mail Plus's weekly show, bringing you all of the latest royal news and gossip recorded just down the road from Kensington Palace. I'm Jo Elvin, and here's what you have to look forward to this week. Well, it's a case of not all on board. We'll bring you the latest from the controversial Royal Train Tour. Plus, Royal biographer Penny Juna tells us why the royals have always been barking about their pets. And the Queen, she'd better start knitting as more great-grandchildren are on the way. Well, it was meant to be a good old-fashioned royal tour to cheer us all up, a nation facing a very difficult Christmas. And while some people have been happy to see the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge on their train trip around Britain, not everyone has been so welcoming, especially our friends north of the border. Rebecca English is here now on Skype. Rebecca, let's start with this controversy with Nicola Sturgeon not being completely a fan of the train trip. Yeah, I don't I think controversial is maybe a bit harsh, but yes, William and Kate undertook a whirlwind 48-hour trip in England, Scotland and Wales this week to personally thank key workers and individuals and organisations who've gone above and beyond for their communities and frankly, as you say, spread a bit of Christmas cheer at the end of what's been a very difficult year. But, as you rightly say, not everyone was happy about it, particularly Scottish, Scottish First Minister... Minister. Nicola Sturgeon and the Welsh Health Minister, both of whom made very clear they didn't think the trip should have gone ahead because they are trying to discourage cross-border travel because of high rates of COVID. So there was a little bit of controversy on the way. Did you think anybody in the palace foresaw the political stir, that, you know, as minor as it might be, that, that it's caused? I'm not sure they foresaw it, but I mean, obviously, they made clear that work trips are exempt from the regulations. And this is exactly what it was, a work trip. And while I don't think anyone uh, would question those issues being raised and, and spoken about, is it a wise thing to do? Well, I do think some of the political grandstanding this week was a bit disingenuous, was that these trips aren't just conjured up overnight. They are months in the planning and involve government and regional authorities at every single level. So none of what happened this week would have come as a surprise to either the Scottish authorities or the Welsh authorities. How do you imagine that Kate and William are reacting to, to this story at the moment? Well, I know the attitude was a bit, keep calm and carry on. You know, we think we're doing a thing. We, you know, we, we feel we have, you know, dotted every I, crossed every T, jumped through every hoop uh, to make sure that this trip is as uh, in line with regulations and as safe as possible. Uh, for example, the, the places they stopped off at, nothing was announced until the very last minute to stop crowds forming. You know, I think they just thought, let's go on and get on with this did actually join them in Cardiff. What was the mood like on the ground with the royals and with the public? Yeah, I did. I, I went to Cardiff Castle and this is where I think maybe the politicians came across as being slightly gringy because on the ground it was really positive. I mean, Cardiff Castle, uh, the person in charge of it was telling me they've seen their income drop from £5 million in a year to pretty much nothing. So they were delighted that the couple were there 
shining a light on what they were doing, as were the students they spoke to um, from the three local universities. They were discussing mental health provision and again in what's been a difficult year for them. So the mood on the ground, I'd say, was pretty joyful and quite grateful. Just turning to Kate specifically for a minute, there's no lazy lockdown looks there, are there? She's had quite an array of coats. Yeah, absolutely. And I should point out, actually, every designer she wore this week was British. Uh, and also there was a real nod to the places that she went to. So, for example, in Edinburgh, she had a bag by Strathbury, who's a local designer. And in Wales, she wore a pair of earrings by a little local brand called Spells of Love. And actually, I had an email from the owner, Haley just uh, this morning to say thank you so much for the publicity around it, because you can't underestimate what that means for a small brand like us. Are you imagining that most people view this train trip as a success? Well, I'm sure I'm sure there will be some people who don't think it was a good I, good idea, but I think they will view uh, the success of the trip as what they saw on the ground. Um, and they had, you know, emergency workers, ambulance staff in Scotland saying, thank you so much for coming to visit us. We really appreciate it. I think that's what they'll use as the yardstick of how successful the trip was. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, joining me to discuss all this and more in the studio is royal expert extraordinaire Victoria Murphy, back for a second week. Thank you very much. And Saturday Diary editor from the Daily Mail, Richard Eden. Hello. Richard, what do you make of uh, Nicola Sturgeon's intervention in this whole affair? I think it's all a bit embarrassing, really, isn't it? I mean, this tour came from the very best of intentions, you know, wanting to thank frontline workers around the country. And it's a great idea. But it, it really has been misconceived. It's the sort of idea that a wise counsel ought to have said to them, you know what, this really isn't the time. Because, yes, it's cheered some people, but it's antagonised others. And you don't want to go on a tour where you end up encouraging criticism from leaders in Wales and Scotland. I think overall it was a mistake, I'm afraid to say. Do you think it's genuine or just a bit of point scoring politically, Victoria? Uh, well, I mean, I think I was slightly surprised when they announced they were going to go on this trip and in the Royal Train as well, because it, it's a lot of extensive travel at a time when we know people are being asked not to travel. And also the Royal Train is possibly the most controversial form of royal transport. It's incredibly expensive. We see when we see the royal family's annual accounts that those trips on the royal train often £20,000 a journey. Um, and that does cause controversy when those figures come out. So uh, those two things put together did make me think I would be surprised if nobody had foreseen that there was going to be some controversy or some question marks around the trip. Um, I did also think that it was slightly strange when we had central government, for example, initially saying this is a matter for the royal household because you know, the monarchy is a branch of our system of government. The idea that they're this completely autonomous institution that just randomly goes off and does things around the country or around the world is, is not correct at all. So for the government to sort of push it back onto them didn't feel quite right. But then, of course, we did get that statement afterwards saying this is very morale boosting. Um, but I, I wasn't surprised that, that questions were raised over it. And I, I would have thought that people organising it would have foreseen that in some capacity and decided that actually on balance the the reason for the trip and its purpose and the positives that they thought it could bring still made it a worthwhile and the right thing to do. Do you think the outcry will have chastened Kate and William at all? I think it will a bit because you know they, they take these um, journeys and visits um, to for public opinion to thank people mm. and they're, they're meant to be very positive so you don't really want any negative um, um, comments at all and William and Kate generally have extremely good press you know they don't get this sort of criticism so yeah I think they, they will be chastened slightly and probably 
um, will sort of think more carefully before any trips. I mean, it's just a reflection of the pandemic and how difficult it is. You know, that we've seen them so often on videos and Zoom calls. And like the rest of us, they're probably sick of those and actually want yeah. to get out and meet people face to face. I've got to say, yeah. though, it's really amazing to me that you talk about the expense of that train. It doesn't look like much, does it? I mean, some of the pictures <laughs> of the accommodations, it was a bit depressing, I thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I guess, you know, it is It is still a train that has to fit on a train track, isn't it? You've not got an <laughs> infinite amount yeah. of space to make it lavish and opulent. Um, but, you know, I do think it's interesting what you were saying. I do think it illustrates the kind of wider point here to do with you know, the monarchy and COVID, and it's a delicate time for a lot of institutions, a lot of businesses, and they are no exception. You know, they're tasked with proving their worth when they cannot do their jobs mm. in the way that they are used to. And I do think that monarchy is struggles when you can't put them in the middle of a crowd and you can't have a sense of occasion when they go to places just because you cannot have people or it's done on a video screen and I, and I think that they, they suffer for that and it's interesting hearing Rebecca talk about the trip and talking about the, the way that the people on the ground respond to them, the way that journalists who get to see what they do often respond to them and the way that politicians who may even initially be quite cynical about the monarchy generally respond to them when they meet them and it's in meeting people that they can really influence positive public opinion. So they did manage to get at the end of this tour a little sort of like get together at Windsor Castle with some of the royal family members. How do you think that went down? It's like you know it was a, a, a nice little sort of like bubble gathering of the royals at Christmas but a lot of us won't get to do that, will we? Well, I think it was lovely and it was um, it made for great um, shots of, of them all together. And I think actually it was very significant because it was the Queen saying, you know, these are the this is the firm. These are the people who are going to be doing the legwork in the future. So it didn't happen by accident, no? Uh, no. And they've, <laughs> they've been described yeah. as the, the magnificent, magnificent seven who are going to be going on. Um, no Prince Andrew, of course, even though he lives just around the corner. Mm. Um, but all the others there. And so I think the Queen did see it as a significant photo opportunity, really. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a real kind of presentation of the senior working royals as they now are. Um, and I think, but you, like you said, you know, it was a number of different households in one place, albeit they were outside and socially distanced. But that sort of type of event, having that, I think, I guess it depends on how you view the monarchy's work. If you view it as essential work and vital to our morale, vital to part of our efforts um, when it comes to um, coronavirus, then I think you look at that and you think this is really important and it means a lot if you don't view it in that way then you could say well was it necessary to bring this number of people in into one space and I think that's the dilemma that they will find themselves in is what elements of their work will be widely regarded as essential and what elements are open to criticism because remember that you know their neighbors in Berkshire can't do the same you know you're only allowed yeah. to have six people gathering even outside at a distance so here you've got I think eight in total and it's Again, it's are you setting the right example or not? Others might think, you know what, let's have a Christmas get-together in the garden. And unfortunately, the authorities don't want us to do that. Well, it's sort of like, you know, their front room's probably bigger than about four of our houses, isn't it? So they probably <laughs> could sit in their house. Exactly. Now I'm depressed. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. William and Kate were recently saddened by the death of the family dog Lupo, which was followed by the Queen losing one of her beloved dogs. We asked royal biographer Penny Juno, who has written a book on Her Majesty's pets, to tell us more about the Windsor's love affair with their animals. 
The Queen's love of corgis is well known all over the world, but she's now down to just one after the death a few weeks ago at Windsor of her beloved Vulcan. Vulcan actually wasn't a corgi, he was a doggy, which was a cross between a corgi and a dachshund. Corgis are the Queen's favourite breed, but they're not so fashionable anymore, and the Kennel Club has put them on the endangered list. But what's not in danger are the family's love of dogs. The royal family for generations have loved dogs and have had many, many of them. Queen Victoria was the one who started it really and she was one of the first people who made domesticated dogs popular. She brought across from Germany a dachshund, but she was the first person to import a dachshund into Britain. She had over a hundred dogs of different breeds during her lifetime. Edward VII, Queen Victoria's son, inherited his mother's love of dogs. He was the one who bought Sandringham House in Norfolk and he built a, a kennel there for his dogs. He bred clumber spaniels, which were hunting dogs. When the Queen inherited Sandringham, the kennels that Edward VII had built had become dilapidated and were too expensive to restore. And so she built a new block of kennels that housed 40 dogs. And over the years, she's had an extensive breeding program of Labradors and Spaniels. And she's one of the best and most experienced breeders of gun dogs in the country. The Queen's favourite breed, and which it has been since she was a child, is the Corgi. She first encountered a Corgi when she was seven years old and she was playing with neighbours in their house in London who had a Corgi puppy. And she pleaded with her father to give her a Corgi. Now the doggy was created when Princess Margaret's dachshund got together with one of her corgis behind the bush and produced this rather endearing puppy. She liked the result so much that she carried on producing this crossbreed. Sandringham is the place for, for animals really because she also has racing pigeons at, at Sandringham. I mean again this is something that people don't generally know about the Queen. And she also has budgerigars that she's had since she was a child and she now has over a hundred in an aviary at Windsor. All of the Queen's children have dogs. None of them have corgis. It's interesting that they haven't developed their mother's love of corgis. Prince Charles has had Labradors over the years and then he moved on to Jack Russells and he's now got two Jack Russells that actually belong to Camilla who, got the, who rescued them from Battersea Dogs and Cats Home. Princess Anne actually has a criminal record on account of her passion for dogs. One of her dogs, a bull terrier, was passionate about moving wheels and ran after a child who was on a bicycle, squealing and shouting on a bicycle. And going after the wheel, unfortunately got the child and bit him. Anne hasn't had much luck with her dogs. There was another occasion when Princess Anne arrived at Sandringham for Christmas on Christmas Eve, and she arrived with her three bull terriers, and the Queen's corgis, who were inside the house, came racing down when they heard the door opening, and the dogs met in the doorway, and one of, her, one of Anne's bull terriers savaged one of the Queen's corgis and damaged it so much that the next day it actually had to be put down. Corgis are all house dogs and they all have their own baskets. 
raised from the floor so as not to be drafty. And they are fed on a wonderful diet of meat that is hunted on the royal estates. So they'll have um, rabbits, deer, whatever, whatever's going. They don't eat off silver plates, as you might imagine. They have very practical sort of bowls like the rest of us have. Um, and th these bowls are brought on a silver tray into the room where the Queen is waiting for them by a footman. The Queen then pours her own gravy mixture over the, over the food and adds whatever homeopathic or herbal remedies each dog needs. And she then gets them all sitting in a semicircle around her. These are in the days when she had many dogs. She had up to 10 at one time. And she would get them all seated in a semicircle around her. And she would then, one by one, give the dogs their food. And not one ate their food until she gave the command. Since Queen Victoria's time, there has been a pet cemetery at Sandringham and actually at their other residences as well. Each dog gets a plaque on the wall or a gravestone engraved invariably with the name of the dog, the date of its life and death, and faithful companion to the Queen. I've been writing about this family for nearly 40 years, but it was only when I started writing about the Queen's relationship with her dogs that I realised that this is where the Queen is at her happiest. And as one of her cousins, Lady Pamela Hicks, once said, the Queen is a very private person. She longs to be in a room with nobody else. And if she has to choose between the dogs, the horses and friends, there is no doubt which one she would choose. And Penny's book, All the Queen's Corgis, the story of Elizabeth II and her most faithful companions, can be bought wherever you buy good books. And I'm always happy talking about dogs. So let's stay on the theme now as we bring Rebecca back in. Rebecca, I hear that a royal dog was brought into service this week. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, I love talking about dogs too. So on Wednesday, I joined the Duchess of Cornwall when she visited Batty Dogs and Cats Home, Old Windsor Centre. And she was there to open a kennels uh, that have been named after her. She's been patron of Batty since I think 2017. Um, but she brought along a VIP guest with her, her rescue dog, Beth, who's a little Jack Russell. And actually, I was standing next to Beth. Uh, who'd had to arrive separately because she was coming from somewhere else um, when the Duchess's car drew up and Beth went absolutely crackers when she saw her and kind of dragged the handle along on her lead and kind of threw herself into her mum's arms and uh, even growled actually another dog that dared to kind of put its nose in Camilla's direction so it was very sweet. That's Beth who was apparently deemed the only dog trustworthy of, of performing this mission today. Yeah, yeah. So Camilla actually has two rescue dogs, Beth and Bluebell, both from Battersea, which I think is really nice that, you know, as patron of the organisation, she also gets her dogs from there. Um, but she has got another dog, Bluebell. And I have to tell you, Bluebell is a little bit naughty and I don't think is trusted with onerous affairs of state. And actually, Beth Howe was there for a really important and very specific duty. She was going to become the first royal pet to stand in for their master or mistress and unveil a plaque. And Battersea were really clever. What they did was they attached a sausage to the piece of material that was over the plaque. And Camilla picked Beth up in her arms and put Beth towards the plaque. And of course, Beth did what any Jack Russell or any you know self-respecting dog would do and grabbed the sausage. So Camilla quickly pulled her back and they unveiled the plaque that way. 
Um, uh, so Beth, you know, carried out her duties with aplomb. I'm not sure Bluebell would have done the same. Done it for a sausage, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> um, so, but what did the Duchess have to say on the day? Well, she's very keen to pay tribute to Battersea, who are celebrating 160 years of helping dogs and cats. They rehome thousands every year. But she also made quite a serious point, was that she knows... They've had a tough year, like all charities. Their revenue has, has fallen through the floor. They've had no be able to do any fundraising activities. And actually, their work is going to be even more important in the coming months because of all the people who've been rushing out in lockdown to buy very cute puppies who uh, I'm sure a proportion of them, as Camilla fears, will eventually realise that they grow up to be not so cute and not so small and that you know organisations like Battersea are going to be needed more than ever this year. And it's one of the reasons why they have royal patrons so they can go out and bang the drum for them like this. Now let's move from dogs to babies and which of those do you think the royal family prefers? <laughs> I would like to hazard a guess but I suspect they have four legs rather than two. Um, but yeah, there has yeah. really... Sorry, I was going to say I hope Sorry. they like babies because there's another one on the way, am I right? Yeah, there is this lovely news um, yesterday that uh, Zara and Mike Tyndall are expecting their third child together. Now, it wasn't announced in the normal way. Normally, you'd have a statement by Buckingham Palace, quite a formal one. But actually, Mike chose to let the news slip on a podcast about rugby he co-hosts. And there was actually a very specific reason for doing that, because... Um, Poor Zara has suffered two miscarriages in between having their other two daughters, Mia and Lena. And I think they just wanted to be a little bit more low-key about it now. And, you know, fingers crossed everything goes well for them. Now, obviously, the Queen will be pleased as she's very close to Zara. But what do you think she will make of the name that Mike Tyndall has suggested? Yeah, Mike was joking on the uh, podcast with his co-hosts about what they might call the baby. And they said maybe because it was conceived in lockdown, they should have a name like Covey. Uh, I, I hope he was joking about that. Although they have, you know, some of the, the daughter's names are a bit different, Mia and Lena. So maybe never say never. I don't know. Thanks, Rebecca. Victoria, let's start with the babies first. Why not? The palace must be thrilled at some positive news. Yeah, it's really lovely. Um, and obviously, we've got Eugenie now as well, who's pregnant. So two um, great-grandchildren for the Queen next year. Um, it's lovely news. And obviously, as Rebecca said, you know, um, Zara and Mike have um, had those two miscarriages, and that was challenging. And so to be having a third child, interesting that they are going for three. Obviously, the Cambridges have three as well. Um, those two families are pretty close. Uh, from what we see, um, William is, we think, godfather to Mia. And of course, we know that Zara is uh, godmother to Prince George. And we've seen those families kind of um, together, quite a lot socialising. So definitely, um, you know, really nice that, that they're expanding their family. I don't think anyone would, would say anything other than it's lovely news. Mm. Isn't it amazing that, you know, we hear about the um, pregnancy of one of the Queen's grandchildren you know, via a podcast it just seems so... Well, it's just so very modern. Such a time, doesn't it? It really is. And speaking of that, we, you know, this is, presumably they're all future subjects for your diary column, these endless grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A, a few years yet, but, you know... <laughs> You'll still be there. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, with Zara and Mike, you know, it's tricky, isn't it? Because Zara's sort of not royal in the sense that she's um, never had a royal role, she's never had a HRH... Um, but then they still are because it's the Queen's granddaughter. So you can never really sort of escape the firm. And we're still fascinated to hear what they're up to and, you know, what, what their children are doing. I met Zara in a loo hue. Hey. Isn't that glamorous? <laughs> <laughs> 
True story. <laughs> um, but now let's let's move quickly back to dogs, my favourite subject. What what did you think, Victoria, of Camilla bringing hers to a, a, a royal duty? I mean, it was brilliant. It was it was fantastic. It generated you know such a sense of excitement, and it was such an appropriate occasion for her to bring her dog along to you know, and it was lovely and. I think that's when you see, you know, the royal family, whether or not you think it's essential work, they do provide this kind of sense of occasion and this lightness to a certain extent. And that was that was a great moment. And it certainly went round the world. And it's something that people Come are Victoria, talking about. You are a royal expert. Was that the first time that a plaque has ever been unveiled by a royal animal? Well, now you are asking. I think, I mean, as far as I know, yes. As far as I'm aware, yes. Um, but, you know, I, I go back a decade and the royal family goes back a lot longer. So. <laughs> yeah. You a dog fan, Richard? Oh, yeah. No, I love dogs. It's great. Well, maybe they can try it with a cat next time or something. I mean, yeah, it is Battersea. There's never really been a royal cat, has there? No. And it is Battersea dogs and cats home. Yeah. I mean, I suppose in a way what you could say is that it is reflective of the fact that over the course of the pandemic, I feel like we have got a little bit more of a glimpse into the royal family's personal lives. We've seen into their homes a lot more. I think, for example, the Cambridges have been quite forthcoming when it comes to pictures and information about their family life. And again, sort of bringing the dogs more into the public arena perhaps right. it's ref reflective that they're a little bit more happy to do that now a little bit more comfortable to do I'm that not do, sure you, that do this you think though it's a bit pointed where you know we were talking only last week about camilla's popularity being something of a, a debatable subject in the wake of the crown you know do you think that this kind of photo opportunity helps soften that image at, at at this at the moment i think that's an interesting point and you could say it does because certainly it was hugely well received and it is a time when as you say she is having um challenges in terms of her and charles and their perception because of the crown um but I, I think Camilla's always been someone who's been quite up for doing things that are quite quirky and quite fun. I remember quite a long time ago, um, she stood in front of a picture of a street art of wings in Liverpool and she was kind of happy oh, yeah. to pose in the middle. And I think she's always been kind of up for doing that kind of thing. I think it is a real paradox, isn't it, that Camilla's, um, you know, we love her as journalists and she's always going for a laugh and will do things like this that you just can't imagine with some others. But then she's stuck with a legacy of the past that she can sort of never escape. Yeah. And that's the, um, the problem she faces. But Well, she likes dogs, so she's all right with me. <laughs> and that's the last controversial opinion of the day, as that is sadly all we have time for. My thanks to our very special guest, Rebecca English, Victoria Murphy, Richard Eden, Penny Juna and treats to all the royal dogs. We'll see you next time. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And of course, you can come back next week and join me, Joe Elvin, for more Palace Confidential. Mm -hmm.